This is the Mile High Five podcast with Carl Jensen and Doug Cunnington. We have authentic conversations about the journey to Phi, health, happiness, and some very odd tangents. We interview Phi experts, side hustlers, people on their way to Phi, and those who have reached the other side. Join us every week, and if you want the show notes and links and all that other stuff, head over to milehighfi.com. Welcome to the Mile High Fi podcast. Hello, world, and hello, Vermont. My name is Carl Jensen, and I'm here with my co-host. I'm Doug Cunnington. And I said hello, Vermont, because I'm here with someone, a Vermontian. Is that what you call yourself, or is there some other name, Kyle? Vermonter. Vermonter. Okay, so tell us who you are and what you do. I'm Kyle Landis Marinello. I'm a lifelong Vermonter, and uh, I'm an environmental lawyer. I've done public interest, environmental, and energy law my whole career. And uh, I got into personal finance and investing a few years ago and ended up researching it and writing a book about it. And then met both you guys at the Economy Conference last fall. Yeah. And I think the first place we met was the infamous Skyline Chile. That's right. I Right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, me and uh, my buddy Flynn showed up there, and a group of you guys were having the the infamous Skyline Chili. Uh, I did not partake myself, but <laughs> I heard rave reviews. So you never tried it. You were in Cincinnati, and you did not do, as they do in Rome or however that saying goes, you did not try the Skyline Chili the whole time you were there. Yep. <laughs> so <laughs> it's uh, – <laughs> I have a good reason. I so as a uh, you know environmental lawyer uh, a long time ago i actually gave up eating beef um, because of the environmental impacts it has and so i have no problem with anyone who eats beef i don't <laughs> preach it or anything i eat everything else but uh, i i haven't eaten beef in a couple of decades so okay. that's why i couldn't try the chili yeah, we're going to go to economy again next year and my family might come along and my daughters are both vegetarians and I want them to have the Skyline Chili. So I'm trying to, I, I don't know, I can't see them adopting a vegetarian version anytime soon. I think there <laughs> there is one. There I is? Think there, is a, there was a late night and uh, someone had leftovers. I had a couple of drinks that whole day. And uh, apparently, I ate some of the the vegetarian chili dog something or other. Okay. I didn't know what it was. It just looked like cold, uh, you know, food. Okay. So, Kyle, you have no excuse should you come back to economy in 2023. Okay. I'll eat the uh, vegetarian version. (laughs) Yeah. So, we had a suit. made it sound so enticing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It doesn't look appetizing if you see it, but I liked it. A lot of people hate it. But anyway, we had a super good time hanging out. So Doug and I both wanted to get you on the podcast. And finally, here we are after all these months. What has it been? About six months. And uh, you have a book and you've got all these really funny stories in your book. And the one that stuck out to me, I was trying to figure out which one I would like you to tell. But I really thought that your suit story, I think you had an interview to clerk for an appellate court judge, correct me if I'm wrong, and you needed to get your suit jacket cleaned. Uh, uh, how did that go? Yeah. <laughs> so this is an example of uh, taking frugality a little too far. And <laughs> I, I had a, an interview coming up with the Vermont Supreme Court, and I realized my suit jacket definitely needed the cleaning. And um 
so I called a local dry cleaner and they told me it was going to cost $20 to get it done. And <laughs> I thought that was an exorbitant fee to clean a suit jacket. And so I Googled how to do this myself and learned that you can just get some uh, soap and fill up a couple inches of water in the tub and wash your suit that way. So <laughs> it seems like I should have been skepti skeptical of to begin with because it's clearly not dry cleaning when you're dunking <laughs> the whole thing in your bathtub. <laughs> but I, I gave it a try. And then uh, what I'd read was you don't want to hang the suit up when it's wet because that will ruin the shoulders of it and the fit. And so... I got out some towels and laid my suit jacket down on the floor so it could dry. And then I went in another room and a few minutes later I came back and our golden retriever had decided this was a nice, cool place to lie down <laughs> on that summer day. And uh, uh, is there lying on top of my uh, suit jacket, getting the well-known wet dog smell <laughs> all over it. So I have to take it back into the bathtub and uh, wash it again. And this time it's like, okay, I clearly just have to hang it up and the shoulders will get ruined, but that's better than having the wet dog smell. And so I hang it up in the hallway. And then uh, that night I'm making dinner and <laughs> we were making baked fish for dinner. And I open <laughs> up <laughs> the oven and I see the fumes waft out of it and they go directly into the suit jacket, which was hanging up right near our oven. And uh, at that point, I realized I probably should have just spent the 20 bucks. <laughs> so what happened after that? Did you go to the your Supreme Court clerk interview smelling like baked fish with, a, uh, with an oddly shaped suit because you had to hang it up on a hanger? <laughs> Yes. In short, yes. <laughs> they didn't have remote interviews then. I, I wish they did. I probably would have fared better. But um, uh, yeah, and actually, I, I did end up getting... Well, no, I, I think I did not get the job that year, but I reapplied the following year with a properly dry clean suit and, and did get it that time around. Man. <laughs> have you ever tried to clean something like that that's, that's not supposed to be clean like that? Yeah, actually, I, I do it all the time. I think uh, I'm trying to think of an example. Uh, just like uh, shirts, trying to get the stains out. Um, okay. oh, I've, I've got a better well, example. I was going to say, I'll buy you some time, like traveling. And I think like the ex officio underwear, you know what I'm talking about, Kyle? Mm -hmm. uh, so I think they even have it on the on the packaging where you can like wash it your underwear in the sink and then you like squeeze it out and then you roll it up in a towel like a burrito and then you step on it to help dry it a little bit. Don't do that with a suit jacket. I don't I think that's <laughs> gonna mess up the seams a little bit and the, the press. And then you could you could hang it up, but it's mostly dry uh, at that point after you you roll it up. You are supposed to kind of do that, but occasionally, not when we were roommates, Carl, but occasionally if I'm if I'm traveling and I'm traveling light, I'll do that. Yeah, I actually do the same thing. I hate carrying too much baggage. If I can put everything in my backpack, I will. And sometimes you're gone away for like 10 days and I can't fit 10 days worth of stuff in there. So I'll just be doing my underwear like in the sink at the hotel. And my kids will be like, Dad, what are you doing? I'm just washing my underwear, kids. Like, ah, you're gross. I'm not brushing my teeth in there. We need a new hotel room. Ah. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. I don't have take you ever had to Have you ever had to buy new underwear because you ran out of clean pairs? 
You know, it's funny. I think I actually told Doug this story. The one thing I usually forget to pack is my underwear when I go on trips. And uh, yeah, this is, we're getting way too deep too early or way too disgusting too early. But I think at that time I've usually gone without the unfurnished basement and just (laughs) (laughs) foregone the underwear for that duration of my vacation. It's kind of like self-punishment. I'm like, you idiot. I will not allow you to buy more underwear. Yeah. You're going to just get chafed and well, I was going to say, you, you did ask if you could borrow my underwear when we were rooming, and I didn't think much of it. I was like, sure, man, just help yourself. <laughs> yeah, you offered me the, I think they're My Little Kitty or Hello Pony. They're kind of like those underoos from they were, they were small. They were small, yeah. Uh, yeah, they, they were small, but uh, yeah, they were pink with those rainbows on it with the ponies, but I think I got Pinkie Pie. Or, yeah, I don't. I didn't watch that, but... Okay, yeah, that that got weird faster than we thought. (laughs) So we do have uh, money topics to get to. Yeah, we're actually going to talk about money today. And we're going to talk about your book in a bit. But I'm going to refer to it often when I ask these questions. And one of my favorite parts were all your stories. It is not a boring personal finance book, but you mix these anecdotes and stories about your dad in this book. So your dad was a super smart guy, if I remember correctly. He skipped two grades, and he got a full scholarship to Princeton when he was 16, but he thought that was too fancy. You said, I think the quote in the book was, he liked to wear sweatpants. So he he decided to go to Harvard instead, which I think took him four decades to pay off the loans. Are all the details of what I just said correct? Yes, that was that was an accurate summary. He... Uh... He went to Harvard at the age of 16 and um, one of the smartest people I know. And uh, I and I, I have a great relationship with my dad. I love him dearly and, and think the world of him. And uh, he's been an amazing dad and continues to be an amazing dad. Um, but he has always been terrible with money and he knows it and uh, our whole family knows it. And when I really learn more about personal finance and um, what to do and what not to do, it became even clearer that for just about every lesson in personal finance, I had a story of my dad doing precisely the opposite. (laughs) And um, I found that to be a good lens to talk about the topic. I think it, it does. I did try to make it entertaining. I figure no one learns anything if they're falling asleep. And so it, uh, you have to keep people's attention. And uh, and I also find my dad's stories a good reminder that there's no shame in being bad with money. Uh, it's not a reflection on your intelligence. Uh, my dad's an example of that. Some of the smartest people in the world don't know what they're doing with money. And a lot of us are just figuring it out. And a lot of the systems are set up so that we can't figure things out so that we do it wrong, so that we pay big fees to uh, banks and credit card companies and even a lot of um, financial advisors that overcharge for fees. And um, a lot of those groups have a vested interest in people not figuring this out on their own. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I don't want you to tell all the stories from the book. There's so many good ones in there. The chain mail one, the, uh, Kyle was actually a model and his royalties got signed <laughs> away. So he'd probably be a multi-million. No, I'm just kidding. He'd have more money if it wasn't for that. But the one story, if you don't mind, that I would like you to tell, and then we'll get into more money talk, is the 
Oh, it's the pinball machine machine slash unplugged freezer. If you could tell that one really quick. <laughs> sure. Yeah. And, uh, uh, you mentioned me being a, a model. I, I think that's a slight exaggeration and, uh, maybe the podcast listeners will believe it, but the people watching the YouTube video, I don't think, well, <laughs> um, but yeah, the, um, uh, there are a couple of stories in the book about my dad and, and pinball machines. Um, but the, the one you're referencing is the one that I was really amazed. Uh, my, my parents' marriage survived it. Um, so my mom was a big time gardener, loves to do that. She still does a lot of gardening and said, um, uh, just harvested tons of green beans and um, all sorts of vegetables from the garden and, and fruits and put them in a freezer, a big freezer down in the basement. And um, she goes down there one day in the winter to get some ingredients for a meal that she's making. And she opens up the freezer and everything is completely thawed and ruined. And so my mom's just... Uh, uh, devastated this has happened all the work she had spent all summer on that food and she can't believe the freezer broke and so she's trying to just see what went wrong and poking around in the back and she sees uh, the freezer didn't break it's been unplugged and in its place is the cord for my dad's pinball machine <laughs> <laughs> And it was this Elvira pinball machine that he just showed up with one day, right? <laughs> and you said it was kind of, it had some kind of sexual innuendo to it, I think. <laughs> Elvira, I barely remember that from my childhood, but she had very large breasts, right? I, and I'm sure that was emphasized in the pinball machine. It, it, so that was uh, that was actually a later pinball machine that my dad got. So that's <laughs> so why I sure. said there are multiple pinball machine stories. So this was a... Uh, slightly less offensive pinball machine that had been plugged into where my mom had her, her freezer. <laughs> yeah. You're right though. It's a mistress of the night. I was a big Elvira fan as a young boy. So. <laughs> all, all young boys probably were. Yeah. Uh, you said something interesting a moment ago when we talked about mm -hmm. your dad and being poor with money. And that is that the forces that want us to spend money are much more powerful than the forces telling us to save money. And especially back then when he was young, he didn't have access to the internet or things like that to find the truth like we do. And even then, I'm sure it's difficult. We drive around town and I think there's a couple different uh, high fee investment places around town. I won't say their name, but you don't see anyone standing on a street corner telling you to save money or invest in low cost index funds. But do you think if your dad was born out, do you think he would have been different just because he would have had access to the information? Um, yeah. <laughs> Honestly, no, I, I doubt he would have been different because uh, I think for him, he, he's smart enough. He could have found that information out if he really were interested in it. But I, I think his approach to money is often he just doesn't like to think about it. It's not what he wants to spend his time doing. And um uh, so, yeah, I don't think it's, it's as much a matter of the information not being there. Um, but I would say for people who do want to spend their time learning about this, uh, it, it is way easier to do that now. And there is a lot more transparency. And a lot of the industries have had to change, um, sometimes because they're forced to by 
Congress or um, uh, state government saying, no, you really can't charge fees. You haven't told people you're going to charge. Um, and sometimes it's just competition among the industries that, uh, you know, I mean, do you remember we used to all pay for checking accounts just to have one? And then some banks started saying, uh, no, here's free checking if you save this amount of money in your savings account. And then the other banks had to follow suit. And so some of that has happened. Um, but there's still a lot of traps out there. And um, I spent about eight years at the Vermont Attorney General's office and the Environmental Protection Division. And some of my coworkers there were in consumer protection and they were routinely bringing um, cases against uh, different industries for um, same day pay loan frauds and things like that, where they just extract as much money as possible from often from the people who can least afford it. So when did you realize that you needed to learn more about money? Were you like a teenager or was it once you hit, you know, adult age and such? Yeah, it was uh, much more adult age. I think um, as, I mean, as a teenager, I did know I had to be careful with money. And uh, when I went off to college and everyone kind of learned some of those basic lessons. And I didn't learn the formalities. I would basically just try to not spend more than uh, <laughs> that I needed to. Uh, and, you know, just do stupid college stuff at times. Like someone offered to pay for my entire meal at a Japanese restaurant if I swallowed the entire golf ball of wasabi. Mm. <laughs> and, you know, as a college student, it's like, yeah, I'll, I'll take that trade off. And uh, little did I know I'd never be able to eat wasabi again after <laughs> that incident. <laughs> so that was about the extent of my uh, my knowledge on money early on was just be careful with it. And um, uh, and then as I got older, it was really just uh, in the last five years or so that I started to see I was approaching the end of my 10 years in the public service loan forgiveness program. And I was going to hit that moment where I actually had all of my law school loans forgiven by the federal government. And that motivated me to learn a lot more about finances generally and um, how to get my our, our family's financial house in order. Perfect. And can you talk about that program? I get a lot of phone calls and voicemails and I think it's the same people that you're, no, I'm just kidding. I think it's a different, <laughs> it's different scammers out there, but can you talk about that program and tell the story of, of your experience with it? Yes. Um, so I, I knew I wanted to do environmental law and I wanted to do the public interest side of it, um, which does not pay as well as uh, the corporate side of it. And when I was applying to law schools, I applied to ones that had a loan forgiveness program through the actual law school. And I ended up at the University of Michigan Law School, and they have a great um, loan forgiveness program there. And when I graduated law school, um, I was near the top of my class, Michigan's uh, top 10 law school. I was on law review. I, I did all the things that set you up to get a job at a big law firm that 
pays at the time, it was uh, with bonuses. Some of my colleagues were making 200 grand right off the bat. Uh, but that wasn't the path I wanted to take. I wanted to be doing work I felt good about and I was passionate about. So I went to state government in Vermont. My starting salary was $40,000. Uh, so a lot less than what my colleagues in school got. And um, I, but I had access to this loan forgiveness program. And so during the next 10 years after law school, Michigan would help pay my loans as they were coming due. Uh, it, not all of it, but a good chunk of it. And then when I hit the 10 year mark of public service work, I was able to apply for uh, the loan forgiveness program that the federal government has and um, had the small sum of $230,000 wiped out entirely and um, and no taxes due on it either. And so it's a it's a really good program. It, it worked out well for me. It did exactly what it's set up to do, which is allow people to choose the work that they care about, not just the uh, high paying jobs that would have been needed to pay my loans if I didn't have access to a program like that. So I have one follow-up question. Did you really eat a golf ball size piece of wasabi? <laughs> yes. How did they, uh, that must've burned going down, but did that burn coming out the exit too? Or <laughs> It's a repressed memory, Carl. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll get you some therapy and we'll, we'll bring those memories back to the surface so you can deal with them. I, I suspect you might have some ongoing trauma, but Okay. Yeah. Maybe if I dealt with it, I'd, I'd be able to eat wasabi again. That would be good. <laughs> <laughs> now, so you spent, um, well, obviously you're on kind of a mission, right? So do you know, or do you remember when you decided, Hey, I don't want to go into like corporate law. I want to, you know, serve in, in some way. And I'll, I'll leave it kind of open. I'm curious if you just always wanted to do that or if, if something happened and you're like, you know what, this is, this is wrong and I want to work on the, you know, on the good guy's side. Yeah, um, it was, I mean, my interest in the law really was environmental law kind of from the get-go. And I think that comes from growing up in Vermont. It's a um, beautiful outdoors here. You know, we we don't allow billboards on our highways. Uh, you go on hikes and mountain biking in the uh, mountains. I I did a lot of whitewater kayaking. That was my big sport. Um, uh, That's what led to what Carl referred to as my modeling career was <laughs> a, uh, I, I was in a commercial for uh, Kellogg's Frosted Flakes when I was 15. Um, and uh, they grabbed me because of my kayaking, uh, not because of my looks. Um, <laughs> and, uh, I, and so I knew that was what I was passionate about and what I wanted to do when I went to law school. Uh, but then there were a lot of moments where you, you do question it. And, you know, my first year of law school, we had a really big group there of, um, uh, public service students. And then by my last year of law school, it kind of winnowed down to a much smaller uh, subset that was actually planning to go forward and do that for our work. And, and I think the big turning point for a lot of people is actually after just one year of law school, it's a three-year program. And after the first year, 
when you come back to begin the second year, there's a couple weeks when they have on-campus interviews. And at a school like Michigan, big law firms from all over the country fly HR folks there to interview people on campus. They come to the students and uh, it's really more the firms trying to make a pitch for those students to come work for them when they graduate. Um, and so those jobs are kind of handed out on a platter and, um, and they pay very well. And so that's, that was a real test of kind of, is this, is this what you want to do and how committed are you? And for me, it, 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 I was always committed and I, and I stuck with it. Um, but, you know, I've had moments in my career also where I've, I've questioned that path and, uh, the one that is most memorable for me is, um, early on we had a, so we have three kids. So we're a family of five and I started out at 40,000. We didn't have three kids when I started, <laughs> had, uh, one, but then, Within a few years, my salary had gone up a little, but I was around 50000 I think, by the time we had our third kid. Uh, and uh, my partner decided to stay home with the kids. And so I was supporting our whole family on that salary. And, and Vermont is beautiful. I love it, but it's not a cheap place to live. And so things were really tight. And um, I had a day at work where... I was meeting with my boss for my annual review and I thought it was a done deal that I was getting the maximum raise the state could give. Cause when I had met with him the year before he had given me a bonus because he said, we need to wait another year for your salary raise. And then I had this meeting on my salary and was expecting to get the maximum raise I could. I knew I'd been working really hard, doing really good work. And he said that I've been, <laughs> uh, uh, he wanted to give me that raise, but that they couldn't do it this year because they had given me the bonus the year before. I had to wait another year. Um, and it just caught me off guard. Like I, I, I wasn't expecting much. I never expected to make much money at the state, but I was expecting they'd do what they could for me. And then all of a sudden I find out this raise I thought I was going to get isn't actually happening. And I go home that night and I'm walking from our driveway to our back porch. And as I get to the back porch, I see this cardboard tray um, with eggs and cheese and peanut butter on it, which the state of Vermont had delivered to our home because our family qualified for food assistance. And it was just this really hard moment where it's kind of like, I knew things were going to be difficult. I knew things were going to be tight, um, but it hit me how much I'd given up by taking the path that I had taken. And uh, I didn't change my mind. It, if anything, it probably committed me more to it. But um, yeah, it's a, it's a struggle for sure when you do that route. And uh, how long ago was that? So that was probably 10 years ago or so. Yeah. Is it better now? Yeah. I mean, I, I'm definitely paid better now. It's still about the same ratio as when I graduated law school. And that, um, I think if I wanted to go the corporate route, I'd 
probably get four to five times the salary that I currently get. Um, but it is, uh, I, I've worked my way up to a management position and, um, uh, so it's, it's not nearly as tight as it was then. Man, that sucks. <laughs> no, I'm just, uh, yeah, that's, uh, do you ever talk to any of your old colleagues who might've went to these high powered firms making 200,000 their first year? I imagine some of them are probably partners now probably with seven figure salaries, right? They've probably sold their soul to do that, but do you ever keep in touch with these people? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Or I'll go to conferences. I was at a conference last week um, of environmental lawyers and most of the folks there are partners at, at big law firms. And um, uh, yeah, and, and it is, it's a very different lifestyle. I, I think a lot of them are happy with their choices. A lot of them regret it though, because it, it, it can be pretty soul sucking. And, um, uh, I definitely had colleagues who went to those firms for a few years and maybe got their student loans paid off and then burned out pretty quickly and, uh, started looking for other options. Yeah. I, it's kind of sad what you said about struggling and all that, but in a part of your book, I won't tell what the details are, but you talk about your wedding. And when I read that, I'm like, Holy cow, we tried to keep our wedding pretty simple, but I love how you did it. The the Crocs were awesome. I, there's a lot of value to living simply and avoiding jumping into the race to be partner and all that kind of stuff too. I don't know. I, I think I would choose your life over that other stuff, over those other things as well. <laughs> but, Thanks. Yeah, I I did wear Crocs at my wedding. Uh, there, there is a reason to it, which yeah, if you read the book, you'll you'll read. Um, I, I also was dared by a coworker at one point to wear my Crocs made work shoes to an argument I was giving at the Vermont Supreme Court, <laughs> and <laughs> it's Vermont, so in Vermont, uh, hiking boots are considered work shoes, and so <laughs> I figured these. Uh, Crocs work shoes would would suffice and uh, did wear them to the Vermont Supreme Court and uh, made an oral argument in them. So I, I may be the only lawyer who's uh, done an oral argument in Crocs. Okay. Th- that is so good. We got to move on to the next section. But before we do, what color Crocs were they and did anyone notice it? Or <laughs> So these were, they were actually Crocs attempt at a, uh, a dress shoe. So don't get me wrong. These weren't like the ones with <laughs> holes in them uh, and they were black. So they, uh, if you didn't look too closely, they, they looked almost like a regular work shoe. Oh my God. And I was going to say, I, I have a uh, Birkenstocks. I don't have any Crocs yet, although the, my interest has peaked a little bit, but I, yeah, I have some Birkenstock clogs that are black. And like, if you don't pay attention, like you said, Kyle, you're like, yeah, those are just like black shoes. Looked a little scuffed up. Maybe Doug needs to uh, take care of his shoes, but they're all right. I don't have dress shoes otherwise. <laughs> yeah. so. I'm definitely pro croc. Our neighbor happens to do marketing for them. Shout out to Dana. And she's like, hey, you guys want some crocs? So now we have crocs everywhere. And yeah, I've always enjoyed them even before I, I met my neighbor. So people talk down on them, but I'm pro croc. All right. Uh, Let's talk about financial independence. And this seems like a weird conversation in light of what you just told us. It doesn't, unless you get some side hustles going, 
I don't see an early retirement for you, Kyle, but maybe you've got fulfillment in everything you want in life already. So maybe you don't need that. But so you talked a little bit about how you learned about money. How did you learn about financial independence? Because that's kind of the next level up from learning about money and investing. Yeah. So I, um, I, I started, I like reading nonfiction and, um, we had a, uh, Vicki Robbins book, your money in your life, um, hanging around the house. And I picked it up and read it cover to cover and was just fascinated by that concept. Um, and for those who haven't read it, the main theme is that you're trading, um, your life energy, your time, for money. And, uh, when you spend things, it's like spending that amount of time. And, um, and then soon I wanted something else. And the next book I found was a Robert Kiyosaki book. And I read that and it was just a completely polar opposite, uh, perspective. And, uh, I, and a lot of stuff in that, that I disagreed with. And, and this was before some of the more recent stuff that he's done where uh, <laughs> I won't get into, but he's really gotten extreme on some things. And, and I was fascinated by that, those differences of opinions of kind of um, your money or your life is focused on being frugal on lowering your expenses and finding a pathway to early retirement through that. And then this other approach of kind of maximize money wherever you can. Uh, don't worry about uh, um, whether you're doing good or evil along the way. Just get get your money however you can and, and spend it and develop this rich mindset because that will force you to uh, I, uh, make more money. And so then I looked for other resources, kind of more uh, in-between approach, and then got into podcasts and listen to a bunch of those, um, including the bigger pockets money podcast was an early one I really enjoyed. And, um, uh, yeah, just found the topic fascinating, you know, money comes up in everything that we do. And I, I wrote the book because the way I process a lot of information is just through research and writing. That's what lawyers do primarily, despite what you see on TV, we're only in the courtroom once in a while. Most of the work is research and writing. And so that's how I process information. That's what I, I want to do with this. So I'd remember the best lessons and and forget the bad ones. Yeah. So you don't want to troll him, but I will a little bit, the rich dad, poor dad, and everyone calls that book up, but I, I wasn't too impressed by it either. And that, I don't know how this happened, but for some reason that guy or someone on his team wrote a blog post about me and how stupid we were with money. And then he trolled me on you Twitter. specifically? Yeah, yeah. There's a whole blog post. I'll see if I can find it. And I'm like, holy shit, this is kind of cool. Like this uh, yeah, yeah. celebrity type dude wrote a post, <laughs> but the thing he didn't do, he said like our name, but he didn't like link to it at all. So we we got all the, the hate, I guess, but none of the potential link juice from it. So I'm like, dude, you could have at least like linked to us or something. If you're going to call us out and say we're stupid, I'd appreciate a, a backlink. That's but cool, man. It, yeah. It, it's like a validation when you have haters. It was kind of cool. I didn't like him that much. So the fact that he didn't like me kind of validated everything. So yeah, once you get haters, you've kind of made it. So it was a special moment for me. But yeah. uh, <laughs> well, and I remember, you know, the part that turned me off the most from his book was he 
he was talking about being a landlord and how um, uh, if a renter can't make rent one month, how this is a great thing because then you can just kick them out and you've made all the money that you've made along the way. And, um, oh, and it was actually, no, it was worse. This is when you set up a rent to own situation. And so these are home people who are trying to actually, um, work their way towards owning the home and they've maybe paid $30,000 towards it. And then they miss a single payment and, um, he explained how this was great because then you can kick them out and bring someone new in. And it was just so cold and so, uh, yeah, just disconnected from the realities that are going on the other side of a transaction like that, of what that person must, must be experiencing when they're unable to make that payment. And um, so that, yeah, he, he's never been... Uh, very impressive to me. <laughs> yeah. And I have, I'm the worst, uh, fi person. Cause I haven't read most of the books that we end up talking about, including rich dad, poor dad, or any of Kiyosaki's books. I'm pretty sure I wouldn't like it based on everything that I've heard, but I'm curious, this question may go nowhere. Kyle, is there anything from that book or others that you read from Robert Kiyosaki that you think is a good, good idea? Cause I'm sure we could grab pieces from all these this rich, you know, uh, knowledge bank and take the good parts that, that work for us and then just leave out the, the parts that are, that are terrible that you don't like. So anything that you found valuable? It, I, I did find it valuable to look at the other side of frugality. I think frugality, you can kind of get stuck in a vacuum and, um, just be thinking like, how do I, um, minimize expenses on everything. And there's a lot to be said for stepping back at times and looking at um, uh, what are the things I really care about? And is this actually money well spent and should actually spend more than I was planning on? Because that's going to be a high quality item that's going to give me uh, more happiness going forward for a long time. And so, I mean, just one example that comes to mind is when people are buying a cell phone, they might uh, skimp on the memory thinking, I don't want to spend that extra hundred dollars, but in the long run, spending the extra hundred dollars to get uh, more memory on your phone could help out in all sorts of ways. You don't have to stress about if you're taking too many photos or how many <laughs> podcasts or music you put on it. And your phone may end up lasting an extra year or two because you haven't run out of memory. And uh, so I, I think that the idea that you should be thoughtful about what you spend money on and, and be willing to spend money on the things you care about. Um, there's a lot to be said for that. Cool. And before we move on to the, the next little section here, any other books or blogs that were really influential when you were first discovering some of the concepts? Yeah. So for me, it's a, it's books. Uh, I, I'm not a big blog reader. Um, no offense, Carl. So <laughs> your blog's <laughs> wonderful. Um, but that's just, I'm on a computer all day for my work. And so um, for me, it's much more relaxing to be actually looking at a, a physical book um, and then podcasts as well. Um, I, I did list a, a ton of books in, in the back of mind that 
I read along the way that I got lessons out of um, uh, Ramit Safety's I Will Teach You to Be Rich is another excellent one. Um, he presents everything in a really entertaining way. Uh, Tanya Hester has an excellent book, Work Optional, um, and she did a uh, more recent second book um, that gets more focused on social responsible uh, ways of consuming. And um, that's a, a great book as well. And so, yeah, I tried to just take in as much information as possible. And uh, anything you pick up, it's going to have a valuable lesson in it. It's probably going to have something stupid in it too. <laughs> you have to be on the lookout for that. Uh, and sometimes it's just uh, funny, stupid, like a, one of David Box books I got. It was, it was a 2018 version of the book. And at the end of it, he had a checklist of um, uh, expenses. So if you were trying to put together a budget, and one of the items listed on there was car phone. <laughs> it's like, I, I think you forgot to update this when you <laughs> did the most recent version. Um, and and there's also, you know, I think it's good to be on the lookout for, there's a lot of information out there by um, people who have lived very privileged lives and they haven't actually experienced um uh, the circumstances that so many others are going through and they can't relate to those circumstances and um so i think it's really important to read a wide variety of books and blogs from um, a diverse group of uh, uh authors and writers cool and before i kick it back to carl just as a reader, it sounds like you're an avid reader. Do you ever not finish a book? You get a couple chapters in and you're like, I got the point. This is bad. I'm out. Um, very rarely. <laughs> Every once in a while that's happened, but I'm pretty much if I pick up a book, I'm reading it you're all in. the way through. Okay. Yeah. And you think it's because you have very good book selection or once you start, you're like, eh, I may as well finish. <laughs> yeah. I, I think it's probably my uh, type A personality of wanting to check the box of having got through it. So I, I will admit if I find something yeah, I, like painful to get through, I'll start reading very quickly and probably not taking everything in. Um, or if it's an audio book, that's when I find myself in the app looking at like, is yeah. there i'm on two times is there a yeah. three times setting <laughs> yeah three times speed to get through it <laughs> yeah gotcha and then carl do you ever quit books i i do occasionally now um not too often usually obviously i try not to pick books that are going to suck but sometimes i'm like i'm not connecting with this author this book's not for me so do you ever stop yeah, I never used to, but now i do that all the time uh, i have a recent example i'm trying to think of what it is uh, and sometimes I'll stop and then I'll pick them back up. Oh, it was a book on mindfulness and it was pretty good. It just kind of lost me. It didn't hold my interest. And it might not even be the book. It might be a reflection on me or me just being too busy at the time. Yeah. It's just like sit quiet and breathe. That's yeah. the whole book, right? Yeah. It's yeah, it's kind of funny. It's a book on mindfulness and I wasn't able to get through it. I think there's a, yeah, that, that's on me, not the book. Yeah. 
You know, Doug, one thing I've started doing lately that I never thought I would do when I was younger is um, rereading books. And I, because I, I like to get as much information as possible. It always struck me as like, why would you ever reread a book? Um, but I have found, uh, you know, the, so a great money book that came out recently, Stacked by um, Emily Guy Birkin and Joe Saul Sihai. I helped them a little with just doing a copy edit of it. And so I had read the whole thing. But then when it came out, um, uh, I wanted to read it again because it was so good. And uh, uh, I'm doing the same with the Douglas Adams uh, series, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I read all those probably 20 years ago. And now maybe it's because I turned uh, 42 in a few days. I... (laughs) found myself picking up that series of books and uh, uh, rereading it and, and really enjoying it. Oh, that's cool. I, I haven't read any of those books. I'm, a, I'm more of a fiction reader these days, so I'll have to pick it up. I am 42 right now, just another month left or so. The, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is definitely fiction, Doug. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was uh, more of a... I watched the documentary movie version of it, but uh, no, I'm just kidding. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Okay, let's. Uh, so when we were at economy, Kyle, you talked about socially responsible investing, and I thought about this, and I, and I remember even asking you this, this question: the most successful company of all time, at least it used to be, was uh, the cigarette company. I can't remember the name of it, but if you had invested a dollar in that, at one point it would have been worth seventy thousand or some huge, crazy number like that. So I think the question I pose to you is, and maybe before you answer, you should say what socially responsible investing is, but can you do this and still make money? Can you still be competitive with even an S&P 500 index fund? Yes. Uh, and and it's a good question. And it, this is something um, uh, I do think it's important for people to be looking at. And I think it's kind of a, a gap in a lot of the personal finance and fire stuff that's out there that, um, you know, everyone kind of gloms on to BTSAX or VTI, these uh, big index funds that are low fee and uh, go across the board, investing in every company that's there. And that's a great way to invest. Again, disclaimer, this is not investing advice, but (laughs) a lot of people have explained why uh, you often do much better investing in low fee index funds relative to individual stock picks. But what's interesting about uh, socially responsible investing and the funds that are often called ESG funds for environmental, social, and governance factors um, is that some of them are available now that do the same thing, that are these low-fee index funds across the board, but they just pull out a few of the companies, like the tobacco companies, the weapons manufacturers, um, uh, Oil and gas companies often get pulled out for environmental reasons. And uh, and they also look at how do companies treat their workers. And um, if a company is too anti-union, then that might be uh, disqualifying for these funds. And so you're still getting a broad array. You're getting all the benefits of low-fee index funds, but you're not exposed to the risk that some of those companies might have from doing something that the world generally frowns upon uh, and or doing something that doesn't treat their workers well. 
And so there's some interesting research that has come out in recent years that shows that socially responsible investing can actually do better than uh, your run-of-the-mill investing. And it, it makes sense just kind of at a gut level to me that, you know, when you're looking at the fundamentals of a company, a key factor is, is what they're doing sustainable. Is this, is this product going to be around 20 years from now? Uh, and are their key employees, the people who are actually making decisions, making this company work and thrive, are they being treated well, being paid well, being taken care of uh, so that they're going to be around? Or is this a company that's going to lose all of its best employees because uh, they, they don't take care of them or they have discriminatory policies? Um, so, yeah, I think socially responsible investing in the long run could do better than uh, ignoring those factors. And it, uh, but ultimately, that's not the reason that I do it. The reason I do it is that I I feel better about my investments when I'm uh, taking those factors into account. And so, yeah, Carl, I think when you asked this question, I gave I, I compared it to the same choices I've made in my career, which we've talked about already. That uh, you know, the legal profession by by the math. 50% of the time you win and 50% of the time you lose. That's just anything that goes in front of a court. Um, it's going to be decided one way or the other. And I always wanted to be doing work that I felt good about the 50% of the time that I won. I never wanted to be in a situation where I won a case. And then I realized as I went to bed that night that the world was worse off for it. Uh, and so... I take the same approach to my investing that uh, whether my socially responsible funds do better or do worse, I'm going to sleep better at night. So that's what works for me. Cool. One quick follow-up. I was talking to a friend and we were discussing Warren Buffett and I believe Warren Buffett's plan is to give away like 95 or 99% of his wealth, but he's going to do it all after he died. And my friend had a good, pretty good point. He's like, well, why is he waiting till he dies? He's got tens of billions of dollars, wouldn't he want to give some of it away while he's still alive so he can see some of the good he's doing? And I think of uh, Jeff Bezos' ex-wife, Mackenzie. I don't know what her last name is, but, and that's exactly what she's doing now. And that seems like a much more gratifying approach. And maybe that's what people in the FI community should consider. I think a lot of us are going to end up with more money than we expected. And I'm, I'm one of them just because we tend to be pretty fiscally conservative and we're very cautious. And that's kind of what I look forward to doing. I'm not sure if this is a question or a comment. I look forward to to giving the money away while I'm still around so you could see the good it's doing in the world. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a lot to be said for that. And, um, and yet, you know, it's really interesting. I think in the, the FI world, people are watching what they spend very carefully. But then you go to an event like Economy and uh, when we're hanging out, it's like whoever was closest to the door would go and <laughs> get food and they'd buy it for everyone or go and buy the next round of beer and, and get it for everyone. And I mean, it, this is a really generous community. It's a really generous group of people. And it, it's also a group of people that is looking beyond just kind of uh what's what's the 
day-to-day corporate life that is generally set up for a lot of people in the U.S. And what's what's the impact? What do I want to be doing with my time, this limited time that I have in this world? And I think that makes people more generous and makes people think more about um, how they impact others. And uh, yeah, giving is always a, a, a big part of any path um, to financial independence. And in fact, I just about every book that I read talked about that and uh, and how giving is important and that that's not the place to to save money. Okay, well, shall we talk about the book? Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, and before we get into it, uh, sign up for our email list. If you're signed up, we are going to send emails to three random people to receive copies of Kyle's book. So, Kyle, tell us what your book is titled and what it's about. Yeah, it's uh, Personal Finance and Investing, How Anyone Can Make More, Spend Less, and Invest Wisely. And it, it's kind of a uh, introductory book on the personal finance side, but it, it gets into more advanced stuff on the investing side. And um, uh, as I said before, I just try to make it as entertaining as possible. Uh, you know, when someone buys a book, the price they pay for it uh, pales in comparison to the price of their time for actually <laughs> sitting down and and reading it. And so um, I, I always want to be respectful of that. If if someone's reading something I've written, I want it to be as concise, as clear as possible, and as entertaining as possible. Um, so that's what I did. There's a lot in there of just kind of how to save on day-to-day expenses, what to focus on, focusing on your, your big monthly expenses. That's often where the big gains can be made. Um, and some simple ways to make extra money through credit card rewards points and, and other stuff that um, uh, is out there. That's pretty, pretty easy. I, I focus on stuff that doesn't take much time, but can have bigger gains. Um, and then on the investing side, I try to cover what a portfolio should look like uh, at different times in your life. And um what funds to be looking for. Uh, it, as most stuff in the FI community, it's focused on low fee index funds. Um, but I also did weave in some social responsible investing information into that. Um, I, I don't hit people over the head with it. It's uh, <laughs> I, I don't think that's an effective way to uh, get people interested in socially responsible investing. And and I'm clear that uh, I think if, if it's not for you, don't think twice about it. And I don't have anything against anyone who wants to um, uh, just invest with the regular principles of what they think will will do the best. And uh, on, on that point, is there some blend of ESG type funds that you recommend or how, how do you do it in your portfolio, for example, or can you give us an example? Yeah, uh, so... You know, sometimes people recommend having traditional funds and then pulling in some ESG funds. I'm not in that camp and I don't know anyone who is. It seems like people usually there are all traditional or they um, use all ESG. And and the thing is, it's actually now super easy to put together your regular three fund portfolio 
of a low fee domestic uh, uh, stock fund, a low fee international stock fund, uh, and a, a bond fund as well. And you can do that with ESG, with socially responsible funds. Um, Fidelity has a uh, uh, a three fund fun, a three fund portfolio that allows you to do all of that and have kind of a whatever mix you're looking for in your portfolio of of those funds. Got and it. You do you do pay a little more in fees. It kind of brings it from like a 0.04 to a 0.14. Um, okay, but it's still way better than most of the other funds that are out there. And to dig just a little bit deeper. This is not investment advice, but in a spreadsheet, hypothetically, what returns would you look at? And can we compare that to what we might expect to like a VTSAX or something like that? Yeah, I, I do think it's comparable because, again, the like Fidelity's version of the um, ESG for uh, domestic stocks is that's what equates to the VTSAX. Um it it tracks almost identically with VTSAX because it it is basically the same. It's just a couple companies have fallen out. Um, Got it. So, you know, if um, uh, next week everyone decides smoking is cool again and <laughs> there's a big uptick in all the tobacco companies, then uh, yes, they'll start diverging. VTSAX will start doing better. Uh, but um, uh, at the same time, if uh, a lot of people get frustrated by how much gas costs these days and start moving towards more electric vehicles and oil and gas companies start seeing lower profits, then uh, the socially responsible fund will do better. Perfect. So it's mainly the the fees of the management of having to you know sort that out, which that makes sense. Okay. And a uh, quick note, we watched a lot of um, like 90s movies. Uh, recently, smoking does look cool. Hundred <laughs> percent. I don't know. <laughs> My mom, uh, she's retired now, but she was a school nurse uh, for many decades, and she had a poster in her room of all these different animals with uh, a cigarette hanging out of their mouth, <laughs> and at the bottom it said something like, "It doesn't look any cooler when people do it either." <laughs> Because the animals thinking, that's did cool. not look cool. <laughs> oh no, I, I it's can... a, out of context. Yeah. It's not. It's not cool. I don't smoke, guys. Just so <laughs> listeners, children, you you know, we're just kidding around. I, I can picture it though, like a sloth hanging upside down in the tree with a dragon on a cigarette, the... just moving slow, chilling out. I yeah, like that feel. The, the, the baby sloth is on the stomach, hanging out there. And... It's not just tobacco in there either. <laughs> All right, but that's why they move so slow. <laughs> Okay. L lessons learned writing the book. H had you written the book before? No, this is my first time. Okay. How'd it go? Uh, it was fun. Uh, you know, I heard your uh, interview with Brian Feraldi from a couple weeks ago, and he was talking about how painful it was. And my experience was exactly the opposite. Uh, I, I loved doing it. And um, it was something I looked forward to every day. Uh, this was on top of my nine to five, um, which in the legal world is always longer hours than that. Um, and so I wrote the whole book basically either between 11 at night and midnight, or I'd wake up at four in the morning or five in the morning sometimes and work on it then. Um, and so it was hard to find time to actually do it. But when I was sitting down in front of the computer, 
writing a story, whether it's a lesson on money or um, <laughs> something my dad did that had a, uh, a money lesson along with it. Uh, I, I really enjoyed that process. I, I like writing, I like researching and uh, and it was also a project that I was doing um, how I wanted to do it. It wasn't like my everyday work where I'm writing stuff or reviewing stuff to present to someone else. This was something that I got to to do how I want to do it. And so it was fun. Awesome. Cool. Would you write another book? And if so, what would it be? Yeah, um, I have thought about writing another one. I, I think I'll probably wait a little bit at some point. I'll probably do an update of this book um, maybe next year or the year after. Uh, and I think the next book I'd be interested in writing would be about um, getting by doing doing what you think is right and kind of how to combine your moral compass with your financial interest. And, um, you know, I, it, as we've talked about already, the decisions I made did not make sense from a financial perspective. The decisions I continue to make today don't make sense from a financial perspective in that I, I could get a job that pays a lot more than what I currently do. Um, but that's not the only factor. And um, so I, I think it would be fun to write about that and how to kind of balance your work life, your family, your friends, and, um, and your values. Nice. So as we're, we're closing out here, what does a perfect day look like for you? Uh, definitely jetpacks involved. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think it would be outdoor time with friends and family and, and sports. I really, I, I love playing ultimate Frisbee, kayaking, um, water skiing, uh, like go-karting, <laughs> those types of things. I, uh, anything where you're really in the moment, that's what, what I enjoy the most. And so, um, yeah, when I'm out on the ultimate Frisbee field, I'm not thinking about the next work project and when that's due and, uh, or what's going on in, in the world, the depressing news that's out there. Like I'm in the moment and kind of getting that flow state and, and same with kayaking. So kayaking is definitely in that camp and, um, and yeah, just hanging out with friends and family and, uh, talking and sharing stupid stories and <laughs> learning that, uh, Carl borrowed Doug's underwear and apparently Doug was fine with that. <laughs> like, hearing stories like that is just, uh, uh, yeah. I, I enjoy that. Yeah. We're podcast partners. We share everything. Yeah. And to be clear, <laughs> they were clean. I think. <laughs> yeah. Clean enough. Right. <laughs> yeah. That's what he told you. <laughs> so this has been great, Kyle. It's been good to catch up. Where can people find you? Yeah. Um, I'm pretty active on Twitter. I have a lot of fun with that. I, maybe it's because I only discovered it uh, a year ago, and so I haven't got <laughs> burned out or uh, frustrated with the trolls. But um, yeah, I'm at, at PF Author uh, on Twitter. So PF standing for personal finance. Uh, and my website is personalfinanceauthor.com. Cool. And um, we can't 
leave that alone. I'm going to ask really quick. So let's talk about your cell phone stuff. And we we did a sound check, which we'll play um, at the end here. So how long ago did you get a cell phone? Uh, three and a half years ago at the age of 38. And I'm curious, yeah, with the, the apps and social media, like mentally, how did you cope with that? Was it overwhelming? Uh, you heard about all these things and now you have it on your phone right at your fingertips? Yeah, I think that it wasn't for the other reason we talked about, which is that a lot of places in Vermont don't have cell phone reception. (laughs) So I I wasn't actually able to uh, be on it on a regular basis. And uh, uh, my partner actually, she still doesn't have a a cell phone. um, So she wouldn't tolerate it if I were on my phone all the time either. and yeah, you know, I think part of it is just maybe it's the the rural life that it's not as big a part of um, uh, what we do in Vermont as it is if you live in a city all the time. Interesting. I think I want to move to Vermont. It sounds cool. Yeah. Hey, if you guys come anytime, uh, my, my house is open. I'm happy to host you. It, it is a small house and we do have five people and a dog, but a very comfortable futon and... Uh, I'll definitely take you on a good beer tour. Awesome. Yeah. That sounds good. I haven't been to Vermont in a while, so we're due. It's so good. It's so beautiful. Yeah. All right, Kyle. Well, this is awesome. We'll link up so people can find you. And thanks a lot, man. Yeah. Thank you very much, Kyle. Thank you. It's great chatting. Thanks for listening to the show. That was the Mile High Five podcast. And I'm Doug Cunnington, the Balder host. And Carl Jensen is the cool, sexy one. If you dig the show, please do three things for us. Number one, tell a friend, a family member, an enemy about the show. We really don't care who you tell. Maybe forward them a specific show that you know that they will like. It's the single most helpful thing that you can do to spread the word. It's like giving us a virtual high five and uh, actually we don't give high fives in, in person. So the virtual kind's pretty good. And more importantly, your friend or family member or even your enemy will appreciate the fact that you were thinking of them. Number two, make sure you're following or subscribed on your podcast app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, YouTube, whatever you're using, and that way you won't miss a show. And number three, please leave us a rating and review. We read them on the show occasionally, and you might hear yours out there on an upcoming episode. Quick disclaimer, this show is not financial or legal advice. I'd actually be surprised if it sounded like it. It's really just for entertainment, and that's at least what we're hoping for. But seriously, get advice from professionals. Carl and I are just two guys with microphones that sit in my basement and talk. So we'll catch y'all next week. All right, so... Carl, how's it going? I know you just, you ran in. Everything good? Ah, uh, yeah, it's going okay. I had uh, another fight with my phone company this morning. If anyone knows a good low-cost provider, I'm about to switch. Okay. Fuck a ting. Okay. <laughs> Is that, that's, uh, it's a low-cost provider. What do, what do you pay for your cell phone? Uh, it's pretty cheap. I usually come in under $20 a month. So it's got that, but if it doesn't work, then it's super cheap because I can't do anything. So. Yeah. That's amazingly <laughs> cheap. I, I was going to say, I like many things, it's a theme in the show occasionally where I'm just like, you know what? 
I could probably get it cheaper, but that amount of money is is kind of silly to worry about. So we, for the two of us, we pay like about $108 and I have like a cell phone plan on my watch too. Uh, so I could like make calls for my watch. Wow. Do you ever do that? It sounds like that Dick Tracy thing or whatever, right? Uh, not too often, but if I go out for a jog, I'm like, oh, I could leave the phone. And then if I, you know, if I've fallen and I can't get up, then I could call somebody. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's way more expensive than what you're paying, but uh, it works. How much data do you get for $108? So I think it's a grandfathered plan or grandmothered, you know, just to be open-minded. But I think I think it's like six gigs or something like that, okay. which typically we're not using that much only if we're traveling, right? So if we travel and I'm like, I'm not going to get on this sketchy Wi-Fi, I'll, uh, I'll just use the data. But even then I'm like, ah, I don't need to upload this. Uh, 4k video right now yeah. so anyway kyle do yeah. they have phone service in vermont have cell phones come to <laughs> rural vermont yet or i i do not get a signal at my house i, I could use my phone on wi-fi um but yeah there's no cell signal and yeah. they, but i have uh never paid a cell phone bill wow <laughs> yeah. you, do, you, don't, you don't have one or what's going on here or you just do everything I, over wi-fi Get a I didn't get a, a cell phone until um, it's about three and a half years ago. So I was 38 years old when I got my first cell phone. And uh, <laughs> I, <laughs> and then it, it was, it's not a personal one. I got it from work. And so, uh, I, I mean, I could still take it and travel with it and leave it on the table so that uh, friends can take pictures of dinosaurs. Yeah. But <laughs> yeah, that's just my, my work phone. Did work feel bad for you? They're like, hey, man, you don't have a phone. We're just going to give you one. <laughs> no, it was more they wanted to be able to reach their lawyer when they needed to. So, <laughs> Yeah, that's a, that's an awesome hack. Like if you never had a phone and you're, it's just kind of freeing, like thinking about it now, we're actually going to record one today yeah. about that topic. So, okay, I'm going to do, this is a great sound check. We could almost just keep talking about cell phone plans for uh, the whole time. All right, hold on. <laughs> 